turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on uh, this Monday edition of the program. Uh, please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. And uh, one thing you want to check out is over the weekend uh, retweeting a video from Chicago police against the backdrop of more unrest in Chicago and Portland and Seattle. Broken record here. There is a good video Chicago police put together of the mob and how the coordinated attack on police to precipitate a violent confrontation for the purpose of then turning around and crying victim, how that all works. And they, it played out on Michigan Avenue, right in the heart of downtown Chicago on Saturday as uh, police superintendent David Brown, uh, Chicago police superintendent by way of Dallas, explained there was first going to be a shutdown of the Dan Ryan Expressway, one of the major thoroughfares through Chicago. But they didn't get enough people to shut that down. And yes, without going into too deep of a tangent, they're literally the public officials in Chicago and Illinois said you need 2,200 people in order for us to help you shut down an expressway. If you don't get that many people, then you can't do it. So now we have an arbitrary number that's been created, I guess, regardless of the cause you're protesting or rallying for or against, to shut down expressways in Chicago. Again, the, the appeasement continues, which will provoke only more of it. But again, Superintendent Brown explaining what happened in the morning, Leading into the afternoon, and this is relevant because you see this not just in Chicago, but this is relevant to people who live next to near any major metropolitan area because this is the M.O. that's repeated throughout the country. The day began peacefully on the south side as our officers ensured that demonstrators were able to, op- to, to, able to have the opportunity to exercise their First Amendment rights in a safe manner. Officers did not make any arrests. And there were no reported incidents of violence or arrests during a march that stretched over five miles from the south side to our downtown. It was not until later this afternoon, during a separate protest downtown, where multiple agitators hijacked this peaceful protest. I'll get to the idea of hijacking in a second, because that's a word that needs to be stripped from this. Uh, these dialogues now, at the end of this all, every hijacked, everybody's fine, and there's just a couple of bad apples, and it gets hijacked. That's bull jive. That's the party line when it comes to big city mayors and police chiefs. Uh, So when it got hijacked, to use David Brown's vernacular, uh, this was the end result. 17 officers were being treated for non-life-threatening injuries due to being assaulted and maced by skateboards, bottles, bicycles, and other projectiles. One particular uh, one caught on video that we'll be releasing in tomorrow is an officer was just beating the head with a skateboard. Yeah, beating the head with a skateboard. And, And here's the thing. This time around as opposed to the mayhem a week ago in Chicago. There was more than ample police presence. In fact, uh, there was more police uh, than there were members of the mob. 
and still 17 officers injured. Uh, this is what they do. David Brown describing it. You go to at uh, Dan Prof show and you'll see the video. Uh, I'll let him describe it and then I'll fill in some of the color. This group deployed large black umbrellas, changed their appearance, and began pushing our officers and eventually assaulting them. To protect the peaceful protesters as well as their fellow officers, our officers responded proportionately to get the situation under control. Yeah. As a result... And that hasn't stopped any of the hewing and crying about the police overreacting, they don't know how to de-escalate the situation, and so on and so forth. If you see the video, what you see is... A few individuals in the mob put on uh, ponchos, colored ponchos, so that you can see them, so they can see each other, so you know where everybody is positioning. They open umbrellas uh, for more cover and identity, you know, identifying, signaling to one another. And then they push in the center of the mob towards the police line that you know you can't cross. They're holding a line. And initiate the violent confrontation and then get the pushback in the hope of generating a melee. And that's exactly what they did to some extent. It wasn't as bad as uh, others around the country. There weren't a softball sized rocks being thrown at police officers in this instance like there were in, in Portland. No statues were being torn down like the George Washington statue in L.A. But nonetheless, you have the same story so that uh, so that that well, so that they can tell the same story of police are bad, thus they need to be funded, to to be defunded. And one interesting thing, and this is from the ABC affiliate in Chicago. This is this is a, a statement that, of fact, but you just wouldn't expect it from a reporter within the Chicago Press Corps, which is again just an extension of the DT, DC Press Corps. ABC Seven reporting on the protesting slash initiation of violence. Quote: They came to protest against police brutality. Nevertheless, it was police who protected them on the streets as they marched. Wow. Almost knocked me over when I read that line uh, from a, an ABC affiliate in, in Chicago in terms of their characterization of this. But um, so a- anyway, so th- that's exactly what happened here. And it's important because there's this idea that now the political leadership is promoting, just as it was promoting in other cities. We've got the city back. Yes, there was some lawlessness. We're not going to tolerate it. Pounding our our little features on our little podiums. We're not going to tolerate. We got the city back because we had this great show of police force. The police act responsibly. There were some police injured, but uh, they didn't escalate. They took it and responded appropriately, as I said. So everything's fine. That's what Lori Lightfoot was trying to convince the nation when she appeared with Margaret Bennett on Face the Nation. The vast majority of these have been peaceful, but what we've also seen is people who have embedded themselves in these seemingly peaceful protests and come for a fight. So what happened yesterday was really over very quickly because our police department is resolved to make sure that we protect peaceful protests, but we are absolutely not going to tolerate people who come to these protests looking for a fight and are intending to injure our police officers and injure innocent people who just come to be able to express uh, their First Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. That is a very different thing that happened yesterday that unfortunately uh, what happened in the looting last Sunday night, which absolutely was a planned attack. It's not spontaneous when you bring U-Haul trucks, cargo vans and high-end robbery tools. Who so we are it? working with our well, that's what we're working with our federal partners uh, to identify exactly who the ringleaders are. We obviously made 100 plus arrests that night. We're actively pursuing uh, cases against others. 
Yeah, so now it's uh, law and order all the way with little Lori Lightfoot. Don't buy it for a second. Do not buy it for a second. Because that's not the posture of ideologues like Lightfoot. She's just as much a socialist spice girl as AOC, just as much an identitarian as Rashida Tlaib, just as much of a, a Jacobin, even though she's a former federal prosecutor. So is Jenny Durkin in Seattle. So what does that matter anymore? The rule of law is subordinated to identitarian politics, just like uh, Ilhan Omar would advocate. Oh, and don't forget uh, Chicago's very own, now by way of Massachusetts, Ayanna Presley, Francis Parker Spice. She uh, is a graduate of an elite school in Lincoln Park in Chicago where uh, rich people send their kids to be indoctrinated to oppose, in theory, what their parents do in practice. And this was Ayanna Presley on MSNBC over the weekend calling for unrest. Now, this was about uh, this conspiracy theory regarding the post office. But uh, she's got a principled statement that she makes across the board that's not limited to the post office conspiracy. I'm looking to the public. You know, this is as much about public outcry and organizing and mobilizing and applying pressure so that this GOP-led Senate and that these governors that continue to carry water for this administration, putting the American people in, in harm's way, um, turning a deaf ear to the needs of our families and our communities, hold them accountable. Well, make the phone call, send the email, show up. You know, there needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there is unrest in our lives. And there needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there's unrest in our lives, categorically. Uh-huh. Well, the business community in Chicago, some of them are starting to get it and starting to speak out. I mentioned uh, one CEO of a significant residential property management concern in Chicago. Got another one over the weekend. This from family jeweler that's been in Chicago for 100 years, Dear Mayor Lightfoot from Lester Lampert Jewelers, Dave Lampert, CEO. We were supposed to be celebrating our 100-year anniversary as a Chicago-based fine jeweler. This is going to be 2020. It's going to be a special year for us. It's disheartening to see what our city has become. As if the riots weren't bad enough, we are currently number one in shootings and murder. We're hearing story after story from clients afraid to come to the city to see us right now. People are terrified to go out in public. As you can imagine, this isn't good for business. He concludes saying, Mayor, I'm sure your intentions are all good, but you must put politics and ego aside and work toward fixing these issues once and for all. If it means uh, accepting help from the federal government, please take it. I fear we are at a tipping point right now. We will either get Chicago back to its great stature among the world's finest cities or delve further into the chaos, the likes of which will make Detroit in the 80s and 90s look like paradise. Well, putting your polit- putting politics and ego aside, that's tall order, Mr. Lambert. And um, I don't think uh, Mayor Lightfoot, much like these other Marxist mayors of big city America, are up for the challenge. This is Dan Tell me why I don't like money. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Moving off of uh, urban unrest and violence to schools and COVID-19. Nutra High School. Uh, Again, this is a high school it has some national profile. It's uh, on the North Shore of Chicago. It's had a lot of famous people go through there, particularly actors, um, including, well, including Charlton Heston and Anna Margaret, including 
Our friend Steve Moore, economist, uh, noted economist. I don't know if he's in the Heston category, but okay. And many others. It's a wealthy area. And Nutrier initially was going to do hybrid a couple days in. Well, at a board meeting last week, the board secretary dutifully read a letter from the school psychologists. Yes, plural. About uh, the matter of hybrid learning versus going fully remote. And I, I play this excerpt from the letter for you because I think you're going to see this around the country. So understand what school boards are now doing, especially school boards that are left uh, and school districts that are run by the left, which is most of the government school districts uh, uh, and the unions, a combination of the two that really don't want to do hybrid learning. Did this as a sort of compromise because they wanted to hedge their bets a little bit now that they're feeling ascendant, they're feeling their oats a little bit. They're feeling like they're winning the argument. They've generated enough fear among parents and the populace that maybe they can get away with not being in the classroom at all, doing full e-learning, that's where they're going to go. So uh, get a load of the argument they make. We, the school psychologists of Nutria High School, are committed to a high-quality education that supports the social, emotional, and intellectual development of all students. While the intent behind the hybrid learning plan is noble, we believe it provides only a marginal increase in academic and emotional engagement, which is far outweighed by the increased health danger to all. Therefore, we support full remote learning in the fall. One of our uh, school psychologists wrote previously to this board about typical adolescent behavior. The hybrid plan relies on young adults doing the things that are contrary to their very nature. Social distancing and following rules, what they likely will view as minor because they don't see the danger. Additionally, the change in relationships from teacher-student to a discipline orientation enforcing mask wearing, desk cleaning, and hand washing will negatively impact learning and growth. Let's say by some miracle everyone follows the rules, including accurate symptom reporting, mask wearing, and hand washing. Even in this unlikely scenario, the school psychologists believe that the hybrid model provides minimal benefit to student learning over remote learning. With the black schedule and the hybrid model, students will be in the building two days per week and seeing individual classroom teachers one day per, per week. Academic instruction will be dyadic uh, to maintain distancing and split between in-person and remote learners. Peer interactions will be constrained uh, by mandated social distancing. Everyone will be wearing masks, obscuring facial expressions that are essential to full engagement. How is returning to school two days per week under these circumstances academically or emotionally healthier than remote learning? We have repeatedly heard parents cite um, the impact of isolation on their teens' development and that being at home escalates anxiety. How does being physically present with each teacher one period per week alleviate that anxiety? Having lunch with a six-feet bubble around you, how will a student respond to a peer or teacher who is afraid to be near them? How will student mental health be impacted by the illness of, or death of a peer or a favorite teacher? So this is just great, right? So we were going to do this hybrid thing, but it only is marginally better than remote learning, which we know is much worse than in-classroom learning. So since it's only marginally better and we can concoct these worst-case scenarios, a classmate or a teacher dying... Uh, and uh, do you, do you want that on your head sort of guilt tripping? We'll just uh, do e-learning altogether, even though that's the worst possible outcome. It's only marginally better to do it a couple of days a week. And of course, you know, you can't have uh, teenagers following all those rules. We know they won't follow those rules. We won't. We know they won't follow those safety guidelines. I mean, they're not responsible. I mean, they're responsible enough to request an abortifacient from the school nurse, of course, <laughs> but not to keep six feet away from one another. Right. We know what the best outcome is. We know what the best environment is for a child's social and intellectual development. We're not going to do that. We were going to try to meet you about a third of the way, 
But then we realize, well, a third of the way, that's not much farther than none of the way. So let's just go back to none of the way. And that's how there's no discussion of this is this is marginally better than doing all remote learning. So we should be kids in the classroom. No discussion of that. No contemplation of that in terms of trade-offs. It's only going backwards. That's how it is for all these lockdown artists. The only consideration is going back to uh, more power for the government and less power for the individual. But I can't just take it away from you without coming up with a story, a sentimental one at that. So that's what they do. And by the way, just as um, an example that this is cultural in particular areas, this is a letter to the editor in the Chicago Tribune from Hillary Richards. She's a middle school teacher in the Archdiocese of Chicago. It's a Catholic school in Wilmette where she teaches. Listen to this. In 11 days, the bells will ring. The Archdiocese of Chicago is determined to have students back in the classroom. So I'll be there ready to welcome the kids I've missed deeply over the last five months. And I will not know how to teach them. How can I? I will not be able to hear my shy student who has their head down, too nervous to ask why their answer is wrong. I will not be able to show my arrogant student how to work well with others since all students must remain distant. I will not be able to ask my hyperactive student to run an errand for me on the days they forget to take their medication. My students are 12, 13, 14 years old, all vital years of growth. Do they belong in a classroom? Yes, undoubtedly, but not right now. Oh, no. Not when fear is more prevalent than hope. Huh? Not when their questions cannot be answered and their stress cannot be handled with the greatest of care. It's all for the kids. The Archdiocese believes a full return to the schools in the best interest of students, but the needs of students will not be met this fall because what's most important right now isn't found in any of their textbooks. I do not care if they don't remember how to conjugate verbs five years from now. I do not care if they do not remember my name. I care about the way I lean in to point out their greatness when they only see failure. I care about the way I pull a student aside and explain how a homophobic joke is destructive to people we love. These are the lessons that matter. These are the questions they make me face every day. Did I say the right thing? Did they truly hear me? Did they learn? In 11 days, I'll put my own health concerns aside and show up for my 150 middle schoolers. I won't see my ailing grandmother for a few more months. I won't join my family at my niece's first birthday party because in 11 days, my students will need me. They will look to me and they will depend on me. So I will smile gently behind my mask. I will reach out from six feet away and I will not know how to teach them. Until then, Mrs. R. Hillary Richards, sentimental barbarian, disgrace to the teaching profession. And uh, the reaction I have to her is even more pronounced than to Nutrier because I expect it from the government school sophisticates, pseudo sophisticates. The archdiocese, and this is such an opportunity for Catholic schools and other private schooling enterprises, too, to provide the path to show young people and the families that pay to send their kids to these private schools the way we will not be beset by fear. We will follow truth. We remember that we live for the next world, not this world. Since we know God, K-N-O-W, we have no N-O fear. But that's not the sentimental barbarism that you're getting from Hillary Richards and teachers like her. This is why the church has been undermined from within, including Catholic education. So just because it's a Catholic school, just because it's a private school, doesn't mean that it is insulated, immune, to borrow a phrase. Uh, from the sentimental barbarism that uh, you see in the government schools. It's not immune. Uh, Hillary Richards shouldn't be in a classroom with kids. This is such self-indulgent nonsense disguised as being other-regarding and child-focused and outcome-driven. It's a put-on. It's political cant from a social justice warrior. 
Owen, oh, by the way, before she was hired by the Archdiocese, this teacher was a sub at New High School. Imagine that. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Nancy Pelosi scrambling the Democrat socialists even on day one of the DNC to get back to D.C. in order to address this crisis, this uh, conspiracy that's afoot by the president to undermine the post office and thereby undermine vote by mail voters in vote by mail states as governors like Phil Murphy in New Jersey move in the direction of more vote by mail and less allowance for voting in person. And uh, the whole thing is really quite the example of demagoguery uh, that the president would do well to be a little bit more precise in his messaging, the sort of information provided nicely in terms of a blueprint for messaging on the topic by Byron York over at the Washington Examiner, who points out the fact that we're, if Democrats are so concerned about the post office vis-a-vis their election responsibilities, then uh, why did the $25 billion included in Nancy Pelosi's bill in the House for the Postal Service not mention anything about the Postal Service's responsibility in an election? Why did the $3.6 billion that is in the bill for her bill for election assist the election assistance commission for distribution to states for the election not include any reference to the postal service why was there no concern articulated in their legislation yeah because what we know is the postal service can handle the volume of mail the real issue is the tight windows in some states in terms of last day to apply for a mail-in ballot and the last day to have it returned to the state for it to be counted to the election officials in a particular state to be counted. That's sort of all lost in this discussion of conspiracy theories. President Trump um, continues his top line posture on the push for vote by mail only elections. Universal mail-in voting is going to be catastrophic. It's going to make our country a laughing stock all over the world. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Brad Palumbo, who is a colleague of Byron York over at the Washington Examiner. Uh, Brad is uh, the Eugene S. Thorpe Writing Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education as well. Brad was a colleague, I should say, of Byron York's over at the Washington Examiner. Brad, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, So how do you um, receive all of this bluster over the post office and, uh, you know, who's responsible for stealing the election? Wow, what a mess is all I can say. I guess the one thing I can say is there's nothing wrong with inherently voting by mail. What is really tricky, and I think Republicans are right to note, is this idea that you can redo the entire system with so little time before an election. And then I also think it's been disappointing to see kind of liberal commentators and Democrats jump into conspiracies, right? The president, as you noted, has said some things that are very poorly phrased, in particular how he talked about how the UPS, US, the funding tied to mail-in ballot. He should have phrased that much differently. But they've jumped to seeing uh, boxes on the streets taken away and announcing some conspiracy. And in reality, 
that happens all the time, and it's a pretty normal thing. So it's just been disappointing, and, and it's been a mess, and it's been the whole thing's been bad for the country. Right, although it's great for the, uh, I, I don't know, the uh, agitated base of the Democrat Socialist Party because it uh, turned out a couple of hundred uh, kettle bangers uh, in front of uh, Louis DeJoy's house in Washington, D.C. Who would have ever thought you'd see <laughs> the Postmaster General of the United States under siege from the Jacobin left? Right. That is funny. But one thing that's kind of odd about this entire scenario is that Democrats are pushing for more mail-in voting. Well, we've seen the problems with this mail-in voting, like in New York, where they had a big delay in the in their, one of their primary elections that was mostly done by vote by mail. And they had thousands of ballots disqualified and thrown out because of mismatched signatures or other issues. And here's the interesting part, is that actually Trump supporters are more likely than Democrats to want to vote in person, according to polls right now. So the more that Democrats succeed in pushing for more vote by mail, actually they're increasing the chances that more people will have their votes thrown out because of the, these issues. But those people who will have their votes thrown out will skew Democrats, ironically enough. Yeah, right. Also, the, you, you make this point that I've been making, too. There's this possibility that at least in part they could be hoist by their own petard because, you, you know, the, the whole effort of Democrats when it comes to voter registration, everything else is to make it as simple as possible. Now I got to fill out this application, send it in. I got to get it back. I got to fill it out. I got to turn it around in a timely manner. You've had organizations that are focused on turning out the youth vote, just generally speaking, say, you know, this is a bit of a concern for us. Uh, you know, we have young people who haven't voted before. And uh, the more sort of moving parts you uh, put into the uh, project of voting, the more uh, unlikely it is you're going to have them participate. Right. That, that's a major issue. And I guess it's sad to see that the two parties and the establishments from both sides are really politicizing voting like this. Uh, yeah, let's talk. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that after the break, uh, because maybe what's happening on the streets of major cities again this weekend, including Chicago, which you wrote about, uh, it, uh, means that however you vote or count the votes it uh, should it could be an early night uh, on november 3rd we'll see more with brad palumbo right after this. the more you listen the more you'll know this is this is the dan proft show Welcome back to the show. President Trump on uh, Friday afternoon uh, before visiting with his brother before his untimely passing uh, had the opportunity to address the New York Police Benevolent Association, an organization that uh, endorsed him um, first time in, in memory that at least the president organization could, could uh, uh, recalled that their organization endorsing a presidential candidate. And uh, here's what President Trump said on the occasion. As we gather today, our country is suffering from a radical far-left movement. It's not even to be believed when you see this, what they're thinking. Where do these people come from? Where do they come from? (laughs) That is trying to defame, demoralize, defund, dismantle, and dissolve our great police departments. It's a left-wing war on cops. If sleepy Joe Biden were to become president... Uber's he would route. immediately pass legislation to gut every single police department in America. You know that. And probably she's a step worse. She's a step worse. Kamala. Uh, for for more, uh, more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Brad Palumbo, Eugene S. Thorpe Writingfeld, the Foundation for Economic Education. And Brad, 
you know, it's not just President Trump who uh, feels that way about what's happening in uh, America's big cities. Uh, you have story after story about the uh, the significant flight, uh, commercial and residential vacancies this weekend. Uh, stories about New York, about San Francisco, about um, about Hollywood in L.A. Uh, I know because I live in Chicago, the flight that has been happening in Chicago for some time that is increasing in pace. Um, the the Democrats, with what's happening in major cities, have a real problem, don't they? Yes, and I mean, can you blame anyone who leaves? I live in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of the city of D.C., and I have many friends who live across the border inside Mural Bowser's uh, D.C., and they tell me that they literally look out their apartment window and see the stores on their street being trashed and looted, and the police are nowhere in sight. I don't know how you could pay sky-high taxes to live somewhere like D.C., like New York, and yet have an incompetent government that is constantly raising your taxes, wagging its finger at you and telling you you are the problem, yet allowing criminals and mass protests in the street during coronavirus while shutting down churches. I mean, I would be infuriated, right? And I would, I would be one of the first people on, a, on, on a, a U-Haul out of the city. So I can't blame anyone that's doing that. And it's going to be a real problem that will kind of haunt economically these urban areas for decades because there's a big fallout that comes with having entrepreneurs and business people and wealthy people leaving your area in terms of tax revenue and economic opportunity. Well, precisely. And I mean, you're, you're again, the, the numbers are uh, staggering, uh, historic, uh, really. Uh, San Francisco reporting the inventory, uh, um, uh, according to Zillow, actually, uh, inventory on residential properties has risen 96 percent year on year as empty homes in the city flood the market like nowhere else in America. Um, you know, these are the stories. New York has record vacancies uh, is the headline in Fox Business over the weekend. Um, and, and again, the same thing in, in other big cities. And I think something else that you said is zero in on because there's some people who feel like there was going to be a a rubber band snapback for some of these big cities when things calm down, maybe in three months when the election has come and passed. But, uh, you know, when you have people make the decision to leave, to pull up stakes and leave, that's not a decision they're likely to reverse anytime soon. And again, it's not a place that's going to, that that's particularly attractive, no matter what kind of reductions in pricing you see. It seems to me, yeah, you're talking about long-term damage to major metropolitan areas. I agree, and especially because the coronavirus has accelerated the shift to remote work for a lot of people. Like I know me as a, as a journalist and writer, I was working in an office, and now I'm working remotely, and I don't think I'll be going back anytime soon. So are a lot of people, right? Everyone from big tech and Google to just everyday people that work at a corporation or business are finding themselves working remote for the medium-term future. And if you no longer need to go into your office, why would you choose to live in one of these crowded, dirty urban areas that's rife with crime and sky-high taxes when you could have your same income and live twice as well in Texas or North Carolina or somewhere like that? Uh, I, I think it's just a logical choice, and you're going to see people taking, taking, uh, taking that route because you can only kind of slap people in the face for so long before they take action. And it's not as if this is just one phenomenon, and then they're leaving. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. This has been a long-term process uh, because our urban cities have been woefully mismanaged by Democrat mayors um, and, and officials for a long time. And it's not just the mismanagement, as you write about at, uh, over at fee.org. 
It's that how am I going to make it make sense to buy property or rent property in a city that won't protect my property? Uh, If I'm not going to get police services, as I've seen a lot of businesses not getting police services in these cities uh, and residential, too, uh, then why would I make that kind of investment? Why would I take that kind of risk that the protection of private property rights is sort of an underappreciated aspect of all this and the flight? Yeah, and it's not something that just helps rich people. That's a misconception a lot of people have. It's actually the lowest people on the on the income ladder that are hurt most by with these cities where you have open assaults on property rights and it doesn't, it, the local government doesn't do anything to stop it because they're the ones who will not be able to find jobs when economic opportunity drops up. They will be the ones who will be faced in even worse public schools when tax revenue flees the area. All sorts of impacts for, for just everyday people when you have these kinds of issues. And one thing that's really interesting is in these, in these nationwide protests, many of them were peaceful protests to begin with, but now we've seen a lot of straight-up riots. How many of them have happened in cities with Republican mayors? I can't think of a single city where that has happened because this kind of thing is, is not something that has to happen. If you have police and you have a police chief and a mayor who let them do their job, you don't have rioting in the streets uh, unperturbed. It's only when you have woke Democrat mayors like Muriel Bowser who basically tell the police in D.C., or at least they did at first, to stand out, let the rioters kind of have go go at it their righteous anger or whatever and you know i don't care how righteous your cause is it never justifies violence and that's what riots are yeah that's exactly what we were talking about earlier in the program about chicago too is once you uh, suggest to the police that you stand down and you become bystanders then uh you you encourage right i mean the appeasement is provocative you just encourage more of it and that's what we've seen that's why it's been 80 days in portland and and, you know, the better part of 50 in Chicago and around the country as well. He is Brad Palumbo, Eugene S. Thorpe Writing Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, P.org. Brad, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show, and as we've been discussing all hour, the exodus from urban centers, New York, California, Illinois, all scheduled to lose congressional seats after the census, or states like Florida and Texas, uh, Arizona projected to gain congressional seats. That said something. And so what's the response from the big states, the big blue states? Good example is this interview that Neil Cavuto did on Friday with a California state assemblyman named Rob Bonta, who is proposing a wealth tax. We're proposing a wealth tax, which uh, applies a 0.4 percent tax on uh, wealth above $30 million. It affects about 0.15% of the California population, so not the top 10%, not the top 1%, the top 0.15%, about 30,000 people, and should generate about $7.5 billion a year. Cavuto asked the obvious question, the obvious follow-up. Well, if you have the means to move to avoid the tax, why wouldn't you do so? There's a kicker. And we also have structured the wealth tax uh, so that... um, Avoidance um, is 
is, is not as simple as moving to another state. We have a, a phased-in approach whereby if you move um, in year one, your your 90% uh, of the tax still applies to you. In year two, 80% of the tax, and so on for 10 years until it phases out. But he's not afraid of people leaving. Thus, the effort, the unconstitutional, I would argue, effort to have a 10-year clawback for those who leave. Oh, and then there's a phase-in for those who move into California. And why in God's name would you do that? When people move in from out of state, the same applies. The wealth tax phases in. Look, uh, in Illinois, graduated state income tax is on the ballot in November. This is, of course, where they're going to go. And remember, and by the way, they're also talking about in California, uh, increasing the top marginal state income tax rate from 13.3 to something like 16.8 to make up the budget shortfall because of COVID, I would argue, because of the lockdown policies, the response to COVID. And just remember, for those who think, well, it, you know, four tenths of a percent and somebody worth 30 million bucks and then uh, on down the line and for 10 years and so on and so forth. It's just these are people in a stratosphere I can't understand. Doesn't matter to me. Doesn't mean anything to me. They always come for the middle later. They sell you on class envy and they come for you later. Reminder. Uh, yeah, it's 13.3 percent on a million dollar annual income in California. It's 8 percent at the 45,000 annual income level. It's 9.3% at the 57,000 income level. From 57,000 to 295,000, it's 9.3%. If it weren't for the the prop from the 80s that capped uh, residential property taxes at 1% of home value until you have a capital event, an improvement or a sale, then uh, California would be far and away the highest overall tax burden in the country. But the property tax, low property taxes allow people to build wealth in their home, at least, even while it's going out of their pockets from the income they make on an annualized basis. But thinking about that wealth tax and how that or the uh, the increase in the top marginal rate in California, they will come for the middle. They always come for the middle for the very point that that assembly made assemblyman made. This represents, you know, a very small fraction of the population. Right. So where's all the real money? It's between 50 and 150. They will come for you. They inevitably do. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. The website, you also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Lives versus lives. Those who have argued that it's lives versus money, those lockdown artists have uh, used that argument repeatedly, continually, disingenuously to try to marginalize those who understand there are trade-offs in life, an opportunity cost to be paid. Well, across the pond in the UK, there is a, a new report from the Office of National Statistics that finds for every three excess COVID deaths in the past two months, two more were caused by lockdown policies. We'll see, potentially, all of the studies that are done, see if we can get a determination. We may never but get some sort of determination as to what was more disastrous, the actual virus or the response to the virus. So uh, it's always been lives versus lives. And now we're starting to see some of the at least initial reporting 
on that. And again, that uh, those estimates and the methodology behind those determinations are open for scrutiny. For uh, more on this topic, particularly the response, because as we have talked about in this show before, it may be a novel coronavirus, but a pandemic is not unprecedented. The response in the Western world has been unprecedented, at least as far as the last, say, 100 years is concerned. We're pleased to be joined by Mark Honingsbaum, who is a historian, medical historian uh, and lecturer at City College in London. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. Before we get to the piece that you wrote about uh, bat-borne viruses and the like, what about that uh, report coming out of uh, the UK about excess deaths from lockdown in comparison to excess deaths from COVID? Uh, I'm afraid I haven't had a chance to read that report yet, but it's very difficult to know the exact figures while everything's so fluid. I think we're only really going to know what the real excess deaths were from COVID and, you know, what they might have been if there hadn't been a lockdown when we're really like 12 months on from this. You're probably right. But of course, the problem with that is that the policymakers aren't waiting uh, and uh, decisions are being made with imperfect information in real time. And so... Mm. You're trying to do guesstimates to understand the cost that you're bearing versus the benefits that you're driving. Yeah, I mean, look, there are trade-offs with everything in public health, but let's look at the bigger picture, shall we? Why are we having these lockdowns? This is not a crisis caused by the pandemic. It's a crisis caused by the chronic underfunding of public health, not just in the UK, but I believe also in the United States. So we wouldn't have a need for any of these measures if we could be confident that hospitals could cope with the surge of patients. So there were very similar concerns in the United States during the 1968 influenza pandemic, Mm -hmm. which is often quoted as a point of comparison. But the point is that then, although hospitals feared there'd be a surge, they coped very well with the influx of additional patients. But we've already seen how in New York and other parts of the United States, and this is also true in London, Bergamo in Italy, uh, Madrid and Spain, hospitals weren't barely able to cope even with these restrictions. Mm. Well, there was a concern at uh, the peak that New York may be overwhelmed, and that's when we scrambled the resources uh, to New York, yeah. including a medical ship that was not used uh, or is lightly mm-hmm. used. But that was not the case. No, the, the projections about the surge overwhelming the system did not come to pass in most of the rest of America. Yes, but surely that's because uh, the social distancing uh, measures were taken. Well, well. But I take your bigger points. I mean, you know, the same thing happened here in the UK. Um, we built overflow hospitals for the COVID sick. The problem was that hospitals by and large coped, but only because a lot of the elderly unwell were sent back to care homes. So it's very difficult to know because there's all sorts of different things going on and deaths in different places are counted differently, aren't they? I mean, one of the problems we have in the UK is if you have had a diagnosis at any point of COVID and then six months later you're run over by a bus, you might still be counted as a COVID death. So there has to be a sort of cutoff point at which you say, well, how many weeks or months after COVID diagnosis should we count a death as COVID, given that it's very difficult to dig into the precise particulars of everyone's death certificate at the time of death? There's no question that's been a controversy. I mean, much of the controversy is in the direction of overcounting, right? I get killed in a motorcycle accident. I test positive for COVID. It's a COVID death. I mean, look, let's take a longer historical point of view. Let's. Is this as bad as the 1918 flu? 
No, it's not as bad. Why? Not because the case fatality rate is incomparable. You know, they've done lots of studies now, and the case fatality rate is around 1%, sometimes as high as 2 sometimes 0.68. Even if it's 0.68 or 0.7, that's still seven times worse than an average diesel uh, outbreak. But there are a lot of things that have improved since 1918. So we have antibiotics, ventilators, and sophisticated blood oxygenation machines. So all these things have made a difference. But we still really need to recognize that this is certainly an unprecedented pandemic for the 21st century. And it certainly compares in scale to the biggest one of the 20th, which was the 1918 Spanish flu. It, it compares in scale? It compares in terms of severity. So the measure of severity is the case fatality rate, and it absolutely compares with that. Does it compare in scale? No, not yet. Well, But there are all sorts of reasons why that is, and that's because we have antibiotics and all sorts of sophisticated you know, there's a thing called progress, you know, right. <laughs> we have <made> progress. <laughs> so, so in terms of lethality was uh, that I'm not the historian you are in terms of medical history, the 1918 Spanish flu, was it the case that uh, more than half of the deaths from the Spanish flu were people in uh, nursing homes or long-term care facilities to the extent that those things existed and or over the age of 70? No, so it's a different demographic, you're right. right. I mean, I think 60% of the deaths in 1918 were young adults between the ages of 20 and 40. Right, right. right. Um, Big difference. But, you know, yeah, different, but, you know, um, sorry, this is a Christian radio station, right? Yes, um, yes. So, um, as a Christian, I assume you value all life equally, regardless of what age somebody might, um, you know, uh, decease. Uh, uh, I, and I think that's... Yes. I, and I think that's a measure of only civilized um, society. Well, right? I, I, yeah. The most vulnerable members. Yeah. Well, well, right. And so we were just talking about that at the outset. So there is this other, uh, and this is not completely utilitarian either, because we make these decisions all the time, including uh, Christians, because yeah. you have to live in the real world where uh, death is yeah. omnipresent. Um, so you make, yeah. uh, you make trade-offs. And there's one way to calculate right. this in terms of public health, uh, days of life lost. And in, I know. In, yeah. Right. I'm sure you do. So let's be honest about this. Well, so let's be honest about this, too, because we, we do yeah. not treat. OK, nobody treats the death of an 85 year old the same way they treat the death of a 11 year old because of the, the lost potential. The 85 year old, it's tragic. You want to preserve all life the best you can. But you realize the best you can is not perfect. And so you have to make trade-offs. You have to make decisions. We've made decisions here, haven't we, with, between treating COVID patients almost exclusively and pushing off people who need uh, needed elective procedures that at a certain point weren't so elective. So we were making decisions the entire time. And I'm not going to be moralized to particularly the invocation of Christianity on this topic. We treat the 11-year-old differently than the 85-year-old because of the lost potential. That 11-year-old had her whole life before her. And so that's why it's tragic. And that's why the Spanish flu of 1918 is so different than this this one and why the topic is being handled so uh, unfairly and in such a stilted way when you pretend that that is not true. It is true. It's true in the Western world. Well, it's true among Christians, making, Jews and Muslims. It's true, you're, period. You're getting very excited. I am uh, getting I'm very excited. I am getting very well, excited. You're getting, you're getting a little bit intemperate, if you don't mind me saying. I mean, there's no Go ahead. but young people are, are dying in the way you're, you're, that there is this trade-off, first of all. I mean, yes, a lot of people are being inconvenienced. You know, they may be getting depressed, but, uh, you know, these predictions of some sort of 
epidemic of suicide or, or, you know, I mean, I think where you have a good point is, yes, there is evidence that people who maybe have, uh, you know, life-threatening cancers, certainly in this country, haven't been able to get, you know, the treatment that they would otherwise have got. I think that's bad. I think that's wrong. I do think there has to be a recalibration now. But you, you need to remember that, you know, when this pandemic hit, uh, nobody was prepared because we hadn't, you know, really uh, appreciated the scale of it and what was needed to be done. So we do have a breathing space now. And I think you're right. Yes, it's important to get more of a balance and say, look, we do have to also protect people with other diseases that are just as life-threatening, if not more so, than COVID. So I think as we get to know more about who precisely is at risk, perhaps we can have a more rational sort of triage system uh, that takes into account the factors you just read. He is Mark Honigsbaum, who is a medical historian, journalism lecturer at City University in London. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Reaction on the Sunday talkies to the... uh, Announcement last week of the accord between Israel and United Arab Emirates for the establishment of diplomatic relations, only the third Arab League country in the last three decades to do so following Egypt and Jordan. Let's start with Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, who was on Fox News over the weekend, characterizing the deal. We're making history and we're changing history. Peace is a good thing. And this peace unites Uh, moderate, two of the most advanced economies in the world, Israel and the United Arab Emirates, and two of the most moderate were fighting uh, Iran and the radical uh, uh, radicals who are trying to overthrow the entire order in the Middle East, subjugate people, propagate terrorism. So this is good for peace, good for security, good for prosperity. Uh, I think it's good for the United States and good for Israel. And he also added, did BB, that it's not the only meeting he's had in the region, the prospect that other Arab League states may follow, even including Saudi Arabia, those uh, aligned against the notion of Iranian hegemony in the region. Uh, Bibi would not disclose who he's talked to, but it's important that uh, there are more talks happening with other countries, uh, maybe a Bahrain, maybe an Oman. Well, you know, I think I think the advantage of uh, pursuing the next step is pursuing it discreetly, just as we work discreetly to achieve this breakthrough peace, this uh, historic breakthroughs. So all I can tell you is that I did, uh, I I have been uh, talking to Arab leaders, uh, sometimes in the open, as in my public visit uh, to Oman and the late uh, uh, Sultan uh, Qaboos, who invited my wife and me to a formal visit uh, to Oman, even though we didn't have uh, diplomatic relations. And I can tell you that that's not the only meeting that I've held in in the region. And I think you know, I think the Arab countries are coming around to see that they can't be held hostage by the Palestinians. They have their own interest to develop peace with Israel, to exchange technology, uh, to exchange things like the corona vaccine uh, development, uh, uh, health, um, uh, infrastructure, uh, energy. 
uh, all the wonders of Israeli technology and entrepreneurship that you see both in the Gulf states and especially in the Emirates and in Israel. And if we join forces, we can do wonderful things, limitless things, uh, for the benefit of our, our people, for their uh, well-being, and for their security. So hopeful note, uh, National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien was on with that yapping little terrier Chuck Todd on Meet the Press over the weekend to address the same topics. And he was struck a similar note of optimism that more Arab states would follow UAE. And he was also pressed <laughs> by Chuck Todd, of course he was, on the uh, Iranian nuclear deal. And uh, did getting out of the Iranian nuclear deal, was that more harm than help in uh, establishing and helping to facilitate the establishment of this accord? It was a, boy, a real stretch from Todd to try to make the case that uh, it would have been better had uh, we stuck with the deal that the Obama administration made with the Ayatollah. Uh, O'Brien addressed that straight away. I think getting out of the JCPOA and, and showing our allies and partners in the region who are terrified of a hegemonic Iran that received over $150 billion under the JCPOA in, in sanctions relief, they didn't take that money to improve the lives of ordinary Iranians. They took that money and engaged in proxy wars in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and, and Yemen uh, and other parts of the Middle East. And so I think getting out of the JCPOA was the predicate uh, for this fantastic deal between UAE and Israel. And, and look, the, the only people, you, know, you had Thomas Friedman coming out with an unqualified endorsement of the UAE-Israel deal, which I, I never thought I'd see the, uh, President Trump being endorsed by uh, Thomas Friedman on this deal and uh, David Ignatius and others. I think the only people that were against the deal were the Ayatollah and maybe Ben Rhodes. <laughs> Zing. Maybe the Socialist Spice Girls, too, since they don't recognize Israel. But uh, for more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis, Vice President at uh, Heritage Foundation. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Appreciate it. Hey, good to be with you. On the deal and um, this matter that Chuck Todd raised, the uh, weapons embargo on the uh, Iranians, I should say, was not extended by the U.N. And uh, President Trump suggested perhaps a new round of sanctions on the Iranians. Do you agree with O'Brien and others that getting out of the Iranian deal was really the leverage in the region the United States created for itself to help broker this sort of accord? And should the United States go forward and go forward with new sanctions on Iran, despite what the U.N. didn't do? The great fear among the Arab states when the Iran deal was signed, because it addressed, of course, none of their concerns. It didn't deal with the missile program. It didn't deal with Iran's support for the surrogates, Iran's support for transnational terrorism, all of which were threats to the Arab states. They left under the impression the Obama administration essentially was abandoning the region and abandoning them. So it would have made no sense for them to say, oh, let's make peace with Israel because America was leaving. And the only option it seemed to David was basically to, to either turn to Iran or, or Turkey. President Trump coming in and pulling out of the deal, that essentially was to the Arab states was a very, very strong signal that America is here to stay and is with you. And I think the difference here between, say, that and Bush very aggressive moves in the Middle East was the Trump's narrative is I'm here with you, but it's your neighborhood and you have to stand up and protect your own neighborhood. And that's actually, I think, energized and mobilized Arab states, Israel, Egypt, to look at more strategic connectivity, more interconnectedness, recognizing that we want the United States here in a sustained way. And the way to keep the U.S. here is for us to kind of step up and do our part. And so on uh, doing what the U.N. won't, uh, new sanctions on Iran? 
I don't think this is over on the on the uh, the sanctions and the arms embargo. And, and let's be honest, regardless of how the election turns out in November, who's ever president, there won't be an Iran deal to go back to. Mm-hmm. You'll have to deal with the situation that you have. There's no warp speeding back to foreign policy of, of 2015. What about uh, what uh, Bibi Netanyahu said essentially about uh, isolating the Palestinians if you don't want to be constructive We'll work around you, and we've got uh, some Arab League countries that are willing to do that. Well, this is where I really get this administration a lot of credit for almost Kissinger-like visionary statesmanship. For decades, the reality had been everybody believed that we cannot do anything in the Middle East unless we broker a deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Well, the problem with that is essentially you gave a corrupt regime a veto power over everything. And, of course— they have every incentive not to want peace to Israel. So essentially, any progress in the region was at a standstill unless the Palestinians you know, wanted to do something. The administration came in and it's, it started moving the embassy, said, look, we don't, we don't buy that paradigm. We don't believe that that's true. We don't believe that nothing in this region can be done until the Palestinians say it's OK. And that really started us on the path to where we are. In addition to strategic integration, to have a strong face against Iran, What this region has always needed is economic integration. Their economies are not linked together. That has been, I think, the biggest drawback to growing peace and prosperity in this region. Now, when you can start to link these regional economies together, it's not just about, you know, we're making peace with each other and exchanging embassies, but we're going to do business together. There's going to be energy lines. There's going to be supply lines. There's going to be joint production. There's going to be foreign direct investment. That, I think, really has the prospects to transform this region in in a way that we haven't seen really since the Ottoman Empire. When we come back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, we'll uh, turn our attention to the, as advertised, less than earth-shattering development in the Durham investigation, a plea agreement with the low-level alterer of the email. More with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. We're back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Heritage Foundation, and uh, let's uh, talk about uh, the development as advertised in the Durham investigation last week with the announcement that uh, low-level attorney at the FBI, Kevin Kleinsmith, has agreed to uh, plead guilty to altering the email that was used as part of the application for surveillance warrant on Carter Page, FISA warrant to surveil Carter Page. Uh, Ron Johnson was on with Maria Bartiromo over the weekend, being pressed again about uh, these documents you don't have, thus the subpoena of FBI Director Christopher Wray, in order to uh, interview uh, these subjects you haven't whistled before your committee, uh, from Jim Comey to John Brennan and others. Here's what Ron Johnson had to say. The, the reason we're not getting this is because the people that perpetrated this massive fraud in the American public have been very successful hiding the ball. Uh, you have a criminal investigation, then you have Robert Mueller. And by the way, I never supported the appointment of, of a special counsel. And I called it right up from the start that Robert Mueller never should have been the special counsel because he, he had a massive conflict of interest. I knew there was wrongdoing in the FBI. I was pilloried in the press for saying that. But now we know there was absolute corruption at the highest levels of the, of the FBI. 
and it's taken years for this to come out. Uh, this is completely unacceptable. We need to get to the, the truth as quickly as possible. Johnson was also asked about others who uh, maybe should be indicted. Oh, I, I think, you know, certainly Andrew McCabe should have been indicted over a year ago after the IG report where he was, and I love this euphemism, uh, laughed candor with the FBI. No, he lied to his own FBI investigators. Remember, George Papadopoulos spent 10 days in jail in Wisconsin for lying to the FBI. So I, I can only assume from that standpoint that there are much greater uh, offenses that they are investigating Andrew McCabe for. But no, there should be a host of okay. indictments. From what we already know, there should be a host of indictments. How do you react to the, uh, as advertised, less than earth shattering event on Friday and where the Durham investigation may be going and uh, may arrive uh, before the month is out? Well, the, 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 there were three lies that the president's critics have just never let go of since day one. Two of them now have been demonstrably proven false. The first is they claim that the administration actually engaged with collusion with the Russians. No evidence for that at all. And it, it's just not true. There's just zero, zero demonstrable evidence that the president ever colluded with the foreign power. They, they lied. And, and what's clear now is that they know they lied. Okay, so that's one. The second one is they claim the president was fantasizing, was saying that there were people in the government out to get him. On Friday, we learned that that's a lie. We now know for a fact that there were people in the federal government who were actually out to get the president and his associates. And again, the evidence suggests that they also knew when they claimed that, that that was a lie. So the third thing the president said was there was an organized campaign to damage and destroy his presidency. And, and, of course, they claim that this is a fantasy. Well, this is, I think, is the, the open question at this point, is there, the president did nothing wrong. There were, po- there were political attacks that used the instruments of law enforcement and government against him. Now the question is, is how expansive was the organize, organization activities to do that? And I think that's the question we're, we're waiting to be, to be answered. Well, at minimum, they have this problem now uh, per developments in the investigation and what's become public, that the FBI knew Carter Page was a CIA operational contact in August of 2016, and they pretended not to know. So that it seems to me that would speak to what you're describing as sort of an open question as to whether or not there was an organized effort to undermine his candidacy and then presidency. Yeah. So, you know, in the FBI, there are layers of man- case management. It's very, very difficult to conceive in a, in a, especially a case like this, a major case where there wasn't supervision, oversight and collaboration. And the notion that, well, somebody did something that was just way out of the ballpark and no one else saw that, ignored that, participated in that, that that kind of strains credulity. But again, this is what the Durham investigation is is, uh, is all about. And and you know we'll see where it goes. I think uh, those of us who were kind of patient and you know we heard the president's claims, we heard the critics' claims, and we said, okay, let the facts tell the story. You know, so far the president is two for three, and the other side not only is the other side wrong on both counts, but they knew they were wrong on both counts years ago and they perpetuated these these falsehoods even knowing that they were not true well we'll see what happens with the third one he is lieutenant colonel jim carafano vp of the catherine and shelby cullum davis institute for international studies at the heritage foundation jim thanks for joining us
back to the program and updating a story that we've covered from the beginning of the saga to present. This is the story of James Younger. He is uh, eight years old. He's the subject of a custody battle between his parents, and he's the subject of a custody battle in part over whether or not James will continue to be James or he'll transition. He's eight years old to uh, being a girl named Luna as his mom has been having him live. Uh, The mom is a pediatrician, Dr. Ann Georgilis, pediatrician, non-biological mother of James and his twin brother, Jude. Uh, uh, This has been a nationwide story since last fall. In October, the judge in the case, who subsequently recused herself, uh, awarded both parents joint conservatorship. Decision uh, last week changes that. Now uh, the mother has the decision-making authority for James and um, can move forward with gender reassignment procedures. Uh, The October decision not only ruled that, uh, uh, I should say not only did rule, that uh, the mom had overly affirmed James as a female by taking him to LGBT parades, purchasing dresses and fake hair for him to wear, enrolling him as a transgender girl named Luna, enrolling him in school as a transgender girl named Luna. Uh, The mom in the case successfully motioned last year to remove the judge in the case because of a Facebook post the judge shared on her personal page. In the post, the judge shared a Dallas Morning News article about her ruling where she added a statement pointing out that neither the governor nor any uh, legislator had any influence on the court's decision. Uh, Anyway, the point is Younger is uh, under the father, under a gag order, not allowed to speak to media. His friends and supporters have organized a Facebook page called Save James, his son, along with a crowdfunding site to assist with ongoing legal expenses. Uh, He had previously been ordered to pay for the counseling sessions for his son, $5,000 per month, in addition to a $10,000 retainer, uh, trans-affirming counseling sessions. Uh, 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 At the Facebook page. Uh, It's uh, stated by one of the supporters of the father that the mom has forced James to live as Luna in a school surrounded by teachers and therapists who do not acknowledge that he has said multiple times to multiple people without dad around that he wants to be a boy and hates being forced to be a girl. Hmm. Um, An evidentiary hearing is uh, slated for next month, so this is not over. But 
mom is moving full f- uh, forward in the direction that she's now empowered to move by the court. An eight-year-old, an eight-year-old who, at least you know, according to one report, is saying he doesn't want to live like a girl. The push, LGBT parades, and all of this stuff by the mom. Very curious. Here's something else, and we reported this the other week when it came out. This uh, walk back uh, by the American Journal of Psychiatry in October of 2019, about the same time this younger case was getting national profile. The American Journal of Psychiatry published a paper, Reduction in Mental Health Treatment Utilization Among Transgender Individuals After Gender Affirming Surgeries a total population study. Two weeks ago, the editors of the journal issued a correction in which the authors of the study found, quote, the results demonstrated no advantage of surgery in relation to subsequent mood or anxiety disorder-related care, related health care. But as Ryan Anderson, writing up at the Heritage Foundation, notes, it's actually worse than that. The original results already demonstrated no, bo- no benefits to hormonal transition, That's about the part where James is at right now, James Younger, the eight-year-old. That part didn't need a correction. The bottom line, the largest data set on sex reassignment procedures, both hormonal and surgical, reveals that such procedures do not bring the promised mental health benefits. In fact, in the correction to the original studies, the authors point out that on one score, treatment for anxiety disorders, patients who had sex reassignment surgeries did worse than those who did not did worse than those who did not. And this is as we're celebrating, some are celebrating James Younger's mother, as uh, we're celebrating Charlize Theron and others for talking about uh, letting their pre-adolescent kid make a decision about their gender and going in whichever direction the kid suggests to go. Maybe in the case of James Younger, maybe going in the direction of transition even if the kid doesn't want to go there as ryan anderson writes you would think parent patients suffering from gender dysphoria would want to know that you think even more that parents of eight-year-olds would want to know that huh but it's not ideological and it's uh, not sick yeah and it's not cultural culturally driven uh, related story. Uh, first uh, bisexual lead character confirmed by Disney. The 14 year old Dominican American girl, Luz Noceta, is not Disney's first LGBTQ plus character, but she is the first bisexual character to make a Disney debut in a television series. The Owl House is the name of the series. Follows Luz Noceta's adventure to becoming a witch even though she does not have any magical abilities. Mm-hmm. Right. The sexualization of children by Hollywood and by the ideological left. I repeat myself, but it's beyond Hollywood. It just includes Hollywood. And James Younger, an eight-year-old, is literally on the chopping block if his dad and his allies can't get a court to rethink what mom is doing. Listen to
You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show, and this certainly doesn't play in Peoria. Lemonade stand robbery? Yeah, this is what happened to Jude Peterson and his friend. They were selling lemonade out front of their home on, you know, the easement on the lawn on a residential street like you're wont to do as a kid, uh, including in, you know, uh, still uh, traditional suburban areas around the country like Peoria, Illinois. And um, a description of what happened that was caught on video. In surveillance video provided by a neighbor, you can see two males approach Jude Peterson and his friends as they sell lemonade just before 5 Friday evening. The male in the dark hoodie, who has been described as a teenager, moves fast, displaying what looks to be a firearm, then quickly snatching the cash box, running off with $30. Nathan, Jude's father, said it was terrifying at first, but what really moved him is how his neighbors responded. People wanted to help in any way they could. Some folks bought a glass for 20 bucks after they heard what happened. One guy in particular, he came back like a half hour later, and he had all these bags of chips and candy and everything, and he's like, hey... You can, you can sell this at your stand, like you can make some more money, and he helped him set it up. And so many people just just stopped and, and said things to the boys like, hey, don't quit, like don't let this stop you, don't let this discourage you. Nathan says they're still deciding what to do with the extra money, but we'll make sure it's invested in something positive. Yeah, I mean, it's nice that the neighborhood rally around him. It was interesting, something that... Um... Mr. Peterson said as well, he said, if it was adults who did this, I think I'd be in a different place. I know kids do really stupid things and they do stupid things in nice neighborhoods, too. Not not just in struggling neighborhoods. The response from the community makes me feel like it's still a safe place. But obviously I'm back and forth about it. Well, yeah, there's doing stupid things like uh, stealing uh, 30 bucks from a lemonade stand and then there's doing it with a gun pointed. Well, at least brandished in front of a couple of kids, Uh, you know. There's stupid and then there's that. And, of course, what we're seeing play out in big city America, we were talking about uh, to some degree at some length last hour. I mean, that has to be in the back of your mind. People in suburban or exurban communities, uh, even more rural areas, although Peoria is sort of a mid-sized urban center, you know, that's in the back of your mind. Of course it is. And it would have to be. And it's interesting, too, because you think, well, what some of these stupid kids, to be generous, see on TV and how they're seeing politicians react in big cities to thuggish behavior, appeasing it. Does that encourage others in other communities to follow suit? I'll tell you what, in addition to uh, deciding what to do with the money uh, and uh, uh, supporting his, his son and his his son's buddy. Uh, maybe it's time to uh, get them in uh, the uh, Eddie the Eagle program, NRA, and start to teach them about gun safety. I'm sure that will happen more prevalent in a community like Peoria than in big cities like Chicago uh, or New York or L.A. or uh, so many others. Yeah, maybe uh, uh, the pathway to the uh, concealed carry license in Illinois would be good for young Nathan Peterson and his friend as well. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers. 
fixers and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. Website, you also podcast there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. We're in perhaps this uh, rather ironic territory where, as our country becomes more racially polarized because of identitarian barbarism, particularly of the racial variety, but not limited to that, uh, you could have at the national level a Supreme Court decision in the not-too-distant future that eliminates race-based admissions policies. Now, there was this 03 Supreme Court decision, Grutter v. Bollinger, involving University of Michigan case, in which Sandra Day O'Connor famously said that maybe two decades from now we'll be able to eliminate affirmative action and race base, uh, race as a basis as one factor in, 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 in uh, determining somebody's admission to higher education, uh, institution of higher education, but not now. And so race is okay to be used as a factor, but it can't be the only factor. And this is where Yale has run afoul of Grutter v. Bollinger, according to the Department of Justice, which found last week, spurred by a complaint uh, from Asian-American groups, much like the Asian-Americans who sued Harvard University, that um, Yale is, uh, 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 well, uh, Assistant Attorney General Eric Dreban put it this way, Asian-American and white applicants have only one-tenth to one-fourth of the likelihood of admission as African-American applicants with compatible, or with, excuse me, with comparable uh, academic credentials. There is no such thing as a nice form of racial of race discrimination. Asian American white applicants one tenth to one fourth the likelihood of admission as African American applicants with uh, comparable academic credentials is what Department of Justice concluded in saying to Yale basically you remedy it or you face a DOJ prosecution. What's interesting about this is uh, you had the in the Harvard case I referenced. You had a federal judge rule on behalf of Harvard that they were not discriminating unfairly against Asian-American applicants to Harvard University. So this is the recipe for this matter to be retaken up by the court in a term in the not too distant future, I suspect. For more on all this, pleased to be joined again by our friend Peter Wood, National Association of Scholars president. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. So um, how do you read uh, the uh, DOJ missive to to Yale and its import and impact on higher ed, uh, admissions in higher ed? Well, it's a pretty common sense and very brief. I think it's four pages long indictment of um, Yale for doing what Yale in most contexts proudly boasts that it's doing, which is uh, in the pursuit of what they call diversity, they uh, give special preferences to mainly black students, and they discriminate against Asians, whites, and Jews, and you know basically people who uh, have historically performed well on in school and on tests are now discriminated against in favor of people who don't score so well and do so well in their prior academics. Um, Yale, in most contexts, will say, yes, that's exactly what we do, and it's legal. The uh, 
Butter decision in 2003, which you referenced, is uh, their mandate for going out and doing this kind of discriminating, but they don't call it discriminating. They say they are uh, engaged in holistic assessment. That's the buzzword. Uh, Holistic assessment means they take account of the whole person, including aspects of experience and background that aren't registered in the tests. And when they do that, it just happens that uh, a great number of black students are elevated to the Yale admission standards. So uh, Yale now is uh, hanging tough at responding to the DOJ by saying that we're going to fight this all the way. And, you know, I hope they do. I hope they fight it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and get slapped down hard by the justices. So we'll see. So you think it's I mean, my assessment is uh, on the mark in terms of the possibility that this is um, a moment where if it does make its way, even through through the federal courts, much less to the Supreme Court um, or through the federal courts as the predicate to the Supreme Court, since you have a Harvard case already adjudicated that uh, you could really fundamentally alter the landscape for admissions to colleges, universities in this country. Yes. Well, we've been here before the uh, uh, Grutter versus Bollinger case and uh, Gratz versus Bollinger twin cases that went up to the Supreme court in 2003 were the perfect opportunity to slap down this uh, travesty that, uh, Justice O'Connor flinched, and we ended up with another, as she said, 25 years of uh, seeking racial justice through by imposing injustice. And uh, we're not quite at that 25-year mark, but by the time these, uh, uh, the Harvard case, the Yale case, and maybe some others get aggregated and moved along to the U.S. Supreme Court, will be just about 25 years. And one can hope that uh, the court will get it right this time. Of course, the danger is that if uh, we get a different Supreme Court in the intervening years, it could not work out that way. Right. So I think you've painted the picture correctly that in this moment of Black Lives Matter and the whole systemic racism thing that has been embraced by higher education, uh, that this is a very crucial moment as to whether the country is going to be engaged in racial discrimination for another generation and whether we're going to dig ourselves out of this hole. Well, because uh, concurrent to all of this uh, are situations like Syracuse University happening. Uh, Syracuse University, and we've talked with you before about bias response teams that are on some 240 campuses around the country, these sort of, um, I don't know, the sort of secret police type operations with star chamber proceedings where somebody can anonymously report you for some committing some act of bias. And then you're uh, you can't confront your accuser. You can only give your side of the story at some point. There's basically a de facto presumption of guilt that you have to prove your innocence. It's pretty, pretty noxious stuff. Well, uh, Syracuse is going one better now. Uh, they're uh, including in their um uh, student manual uh, about uh, how these matters will be uh, dealt with, administered on campus, the Code of Student Conduct, that you cannot do nothing. There is uh, a good Samaritan, you know, sort of requirement that those who uh, do see a bias-motivated incident and do nothing to stop the incident could be held 
liable as a accomplice to the incident. So that's sort of now the next iteration. I mean, it's very consistent with the cultural Marxism that's afoot society wide, which is uh, your silence is not acceptable. You are not allowed to be silent. You must participate and you must participate in this direction. The slogan is uh, silence equals violence. Um, And uh, well, Syracuse, I'd say, is going pretty far out on a limb. Uh, It's one of those private universities that uh, has pretty significant financial problems. They want to set up a regime of rules that drives away a good many students. Uh, I would think that they might want to reconsider that at some point. But ideology is trumping economics now in higher education. The whole uh, commitment of several hundred uh, uh, college and university presidents to uh, making anti-racism their primary mission rather than education has uh, sort of sent a shockwave through the world of higher ed. Well, hopefully economics gets the last laugh. I think economics always gets the last class. Yeah, yeah. Uh, University of Miami set up a system where students are encouraged to report concerns about quote-unquote unsafe behaviors of their peers, and administrators will review the concern. That's nice of them. Texas A&M has a similar system. Faculty members, administrators can file a report if they're concerned. Someone else on campus has COVID-19 or has come into contact with the virus. Tulane has a system, again, problematic behavior related to COVID-19. Yale is con- I'll be back to Yale, encouraging students to make reports concerning COVID-19 on the university hotline, North Georgia, and so on and so forth. Right. As those students are properly trained to diagnose uh, COVID-19 and other people, they're not. And so we're into this realm, as you say, of suspicion and of false accusation and trying to essentially control other people by uh, a low-level terrorism. We're um, saying that uh, if you don't heed what I want you to do, I will report you, and therefore you better mind my uh, strictures. He is Peter Wood, President, National Association of Scholars. Peter, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And uh, as we spoke about a little bit uh, in the first hour with Brad Palumbo from Fee, the uh, manufactured controversy slash conspiracy theory about the United States Post Office as it pertains to voting in this election. Well, why don't we just take a step back and ask the question, is it safe for us to vote in person? Well, here's the St. Tony Fauci on the topic in an interview on the National Geographic Channel. Can people safely go out and vote in person, given that this year there is so much uh, concern around the vote? I think if carefully done according to the guidelines, there's no reason that I can see why that not be the case. For example, you know, when you look at going to a grocery store now in many regions and counties and cities that are doing it correctly, they have X's every six or more feet. And it says, don't 
leave this spot until the person in front of you left their spot. And you can do that. If you go and wear a mask, if you uh, observe the physical distancing and don't have a crowded situation, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do that. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm a bit confused. So we're supposed to listen to the experts. Listen to Tony Fauci. Listen to Tony Fauci. But no, I don't want to listen to Tony Fauci anymore because the Russian collusion conspiracy theory didn't work. So I've got a new one in advance of 2020, which is that uh, Trump is somehow trying to manipulate the post office to eliminate uh, voting by mail to disenfranchise millions of America to steal the election. That's the latest one. And by the time we unravel that one, it'll be, uh, you know, time for Pence versus uh, Nikki Haley in a primary or some such thing. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to The Federalist, amgreatness.com, as well as The Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, uh, you know, the uh, post office, we need to we have to uh, scurry back to uh, D.C., says Nancy Pelosi, to uh, uh, protect the integrity of the postal system and thus the uh, the, the, the the viability of our November 3rd election and save the Republican in the process. Uh, yeah, Dan, this isn't something that I've actually written on recently, but uh, I think that when you look at the danger to voting, it's not that people won't have the convenience of mailing in their ballots. It's that people who want to steal the election will have the convenience of turning in ballots that represent dead people, dogs, people who don't exist at all. Uh, and there have been several examples of that just in the recent past. I think in New Jersey, uh, they found in one uh, local election that 20 percent of received ballots had to be rejected because they were fraudulent. People who were recorded as having voted said, I've never voted. So somebody uh, intercepted their ballot and voted in their name. And this, so those are pretty big numbers. And, you know, the question is, is this uh, nationwide push to scale up? Uh, voter uh, voting by mail. Is that is that really uh, just an effort to scale up the fraud that we're seeing in New Jersey and other places? Well, and also like, you know, the, for all they're complaining about uh, undermining the system, President Trump is always undermining the system. He's undermining the legitimacy of our core institutions. And here they're running around saying that uh, uh, the post office is under assault from uh, President Trump and Senate Republicans to steal the election. And we, we're, we're just starting to get a reckoning for the conspiracies surrounding the 2016 election, as well as the early part of the, the president's administration. Ron Johnson was on with Maria Bartiromo over the weekend talking about uh, the development on Friday with the announcement of the plea agreement between the Justice Department and Kevin Kleinsmith uh, at the FBI, who altered that email, uh, allegedly altered the email legally. Well, I guess he's admitting to it, so it's no more, longer alleged. And Ron Johnson said this about uh, more indictments to come. Oh, I, I think, you know, certainly Andrew McCabe should have been indicted over a year ago after the IG report where he was, and I love this euphemism, uh, laughed candor with the FBI. No, he lied to his own FBI investigators. Remember, George Papadopoulos spent 10 days in jail in Wisconsin for lying to the FBI. So I, I can only assume from that standpoint that there are much greater uh, offenses that they are investigating Andrew McCabe for. But no, there should be a host of okay. indictments. From what we already know, there should be a host of indictments. How do you react to uh, Ron Johnson's uh, statement to that effect? 
Well, I agree with I agree with him in one sense. Uh, now, it should be noted that the Justice Department has declined prosecution against McCabe for that what was uh, in that OIG report, and there was really no explanation for why they did that. It was just a really disgusting, uh, you know, shirking of their duty. But this Klein-Smith plea deal is very important, and what was revealed in the New York Times article that announced it on Friday was something that I didn't know, and I don't know, maybe other people had known this, but I didn't know this that the CIA had sent the FBI a memo yeah. about Carter Page in August of 2016. So this is before the very first warrant got issued. And the memo said, no, 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 he's a source for us. And then in uh, in September of 2016, again, before the first FISA warrant was issued, Page wrote an open letter, published it in the, in the Washington Post. He directed it to uh, Comey saying, hey, I hear you guys are spreading rumors about me being a spy for Russia. I'm willing to meet with any FBI agent anytime, anywhere to discuss everything you want to know about my contacts with Russia. They ignored that offer. Well, why is that important? It's important because under the Constitution, you can't invade somebody's privacy and do a search for information that's readily available from a non-invasive way. You know, So here's Carter Page. He's offering to sit for an interview. Uh, he has a history of being truthful. That's been documented by the CIA to the FBI, and, and he's saying, hey, Come ask me. I'll tell you anything you want to know. They ignore that offer, and instead they invade his privacy. But to do so, they can't tell the court about the, his offer. So they lie to the court. They lie to the court about the memo. They lie to the court about the fact that he's been cooperating with the CIA and providing information to the CIA. And then when it comes out that he's been helping the CIA uh, right before the fourth or the third FISA renewal, so the fourth installment, uh, they send Kevin Kleinsmith over to the CIA to ask him if that's true. The CIA says, yeah, he's been cooperating with us. They're just re repeating what they said in August of uh, the prior year. And so now they have a problem on their hands because the entire FISA operation against against Carter Page for a year has been illegal because they, again, could have just asked him and they didn't have probable cause that he was a spy for Russia. So what do they do? Well, Kleinsmith, this is another big revelation. Kleinsmith isn't stupid. He gets the information back from the CIA and he doctors the email saying that Page was not a source, even though he was, and that's what the email said. And then he sends that email to his other uh, to his other conspirators. But he's not stupid. He sends the original email too. So both emails go out to the conspirators, the one that's the original and the one that's a lie. So so but in that way he makes it absolutely clear that, that everybody knew. We, right, everybody knew. And that's that's the point of my article that you that your booker asked me about, which was it's kind of like that scene in when uh, in Julius Caesar, when uh, Brutus makes all of the other co-conspirators dip their swords in Caesar's blood. Mm -hmm. He makes sure that they're all on the hook, so that if so that any one of them turns on the rest of them, they're all going to go down together. He is Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to the Federalist, American Greatness, and. The Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Show.com.
Welcome back to the show. And uh, if you don't want to watch Michelle Obama close the show tonight, first day of the DNC or DSNC, I guess, Democrat Socialist National Convention. I think that needs to be updated, that acronym, properly reflect the party in 2020. If you don't want to watch the former first lady close the show, listen to it. I can essentially give you a sense of what you're going to hear, the sort of pablum that you're hearing on her podcasts. Why change? If it's good enough for the podcast, it's good enough for the public. And uh, this is Michelle Obama recently with Michelle Norris, former NPR journalist, in quotation marks, talking about uh, language. Oh, and redistribution. It's kind of a new COVID vocabulary, isn't it? There are also words that have always had some meaning, but that take on different meaning now. Mm -hmm. The word hero. Yeah. Um, The word essential. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, because we think we, I think we will forever think about the word essential in a different way. And when we were told to stay home, they got up, yeah, got dressed right. and went out into the world, right. risking their lives to drive garbage trucks, to work in warehouses, to work in grocery stores, to work in hospitals, often doing invisible, but yes, essential work. And I struggle with it because I'm not sure that. We treat them like they're essential. And that's something that we need to, that's a part of that reflection that we need to do, you know, with ourselves and, and, and as a community. And we have to think about that in terms of how uh, wealth is distributed, you know, how, how these essential people are supported and what does that mean? Don't you wish you could just pull up a Sanka and uh, gaze at your navel like those two young ladies? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dominic Green. He's the Life and Arts Editor, Spectator USA, contributor to the Wall Street Journal and New Criterion. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hello. Um, so just some real, some real deep thinking going on there in uh, Obama land that I'm sure will be expressed uh, this week, both by the Obamas as well as uh, those who rinse and repeat what they say. Well, um, as you said, it's essential uh, that we think about what is essential. She's really sent an essential message there. And the essential <laughs> message is, of course, whatever you do, uh, make sure you vote Democratic uh, at all costs. Um, it, it's a strange um, merging, really, of uh, the sort of therapy culture of uh, Oprah uh, with what used to be politics, which was once a matter of uh, budgets and planning and economics. Um, the idea that some kind of um, you know reflection is required when some things are quite obvious. For instance, that people who do dangerous and dirty jobs should be paid properly. And after all, it's not like we've had Republican administrations for the last 50, 60 years nonstop. You know, it's been pretty evenly split between the two. The, the Democrats are most definitely the party of the limousine liberal. Uh, and if the limousine liberal doesn't want to throw a little small change from the window as he or she whizzes by, well, they can hardly now uh, start saying it's somebody else's problem. It's very much their their own problem, their own creation. Well, they have to uh, couch redistri- things like redistribution, which are quite ugly, both in form and, and practice and, uh, uh, well, and consequence, uh, in uh, the language of the sentimentalists to make it all sort of dreamy and woozy and enlightened and, dare I say, heroic. 
Oh, yes. Well, that's another word, of course, which has changed meaning. Um, when it comes to redistribution, the uh, Democrat uh, meetings, they'll be, they won't be, of course, in Milwaukee. I imagine there'll be two or three people with a laptop actually in Milwaukee coordinating all the other stuff uh, as the speakers are beamed in from their garages and uh, back rooms. Um, one of the tragic things about this is that Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez will only get one minute of airtime. Um, Truly. Those of us who, yeah. who look forward to a laugh during these things were hoping that she would get lots of time and a huge ovation from the audience as she basically uh, called for everybody to eat the rich. Well, right. Uh, quite literally, uh, I was looking forward to more uh, of a distillation of her view that looting uh, shoe stores was uh, people who were just trying to eat, uh, you know, turning uh, Ferragamos into foodstuffs, uh, which is, uh, you know, quite the trick for those uh, that are uh, that have taken over uh, Amer- the streets in America's big cities, at least in pertinent part for the last, uh, say, two to three months. When we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit more about culture because you're a life and arts editor, you're a learned individual, and just kind of where you think we're at as you take a step back and look at uh, everything that has been wrought from the response to COVID to the response to uh, vandals on, uh, on America's streets and, frankly, the streets in the West across the pond in Europe as well. More with Dominic Green, life and arts editor, Spectre USA, right up here. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program, and we're talking with Dominic Green, life and arts editor, Spectator USA, contributor to the Wall Street Journal and New Criterion. And uh, Dominic, I, I was going back over the weekend and reading some of uh, the Roman historian Livy. Uh, his history of Rome, including um, his predictions of when the uh, Republic of Rome would fall, and he was uh, not very far off. One of the things that he basically observed was that there was a point at which Rome had become unwilling to tolerate or unable to tolerate its vices or their cures. And uh, that was the beginning of the end. And it seems to me that you could argue, I think it would be hard to argue that we weren't in the West at that place where we can tolerate neither our vices nor their cures. I think that's quite true. And of course, we cannot literally tolerate each other. Divided, Mm. savagely divided 50-50. And those kind of divisions appear all over the Western democracies. The Romans, of course, um, were were looking at how the empire arose from the, the rot of the Republic. And in the United States, from the from the founding onwards, this question was at the front of the mind of, of, of any serious leader. And of course, the founders themselves tried to create a balance whereby the new United States would have, as it were, the powers of an empire while retaining the democratic system of the Republic. And that balance is, I mean, some would say it's impossible to hold over a long period. You know, if you're a pessimist, you would say, well, you know, there is no resisting that kind of 
slow. Um, but um, there have been moments, of course, when it's tipped previously, but never quite so extremely as we've managed in the last 50 years. There's been a half a century of figures that the Romans would have recognized, of, of senators who are comedians and um, comedians who become leaders and, and so on, and gladiators who end up uh, wearing the imperial toga. I'm afraid that if you, you know, the prospect of Cardi B interviewing Joe Biden would suggest that we're in a very, which, is, which actually did happen. I, want to say I that know, I know. Yeah. On my part, that yeah. actually happened. Sure. That we are having an extended Roman moment. I mean, Gore Vidal, who, who was a very uh, sharp observer and a, and a pretty good novelist as well, decades ago was saying this had already happened. You know, after 1945, the U.S. had become imperial in the world and it has caused an imperial change to occur at home as well. He may have been slightly ahead of the curve, but it's hard to deny the Republic is being undone by the hostilities between the people and by the failure of the of its rulers to shoulder their responsibilities. Um, it, it's interesting you referenced Gore Vidal because, I mean, he was a proponent of the sort of bacchanalia that is undoing freedom in the West, isn't he? Or wasn't he? Well, he was in private, most certainly. This is, he was an old-fashioned hypocrite rather than a modern <laughs> one. You know, he, he, in, in other words, a bacchanal in private for the aristocracy, while uh, they, when they, on the nine to five, they would conduct themselves with the interests of the people and the state at heart. We have a different kind of hypocrisy now. And of course, the, the great icon of that, in a sense, will be taking to the imaginary stage in Milwaukee, because he won't be leaving Chappaqua, I suspect, which is Bill Clinton. The Democratic Party is in a frenzy of Puritan moralizing. They really would like to go into everybody's bedroom and just check you and everybody's thoughts even to see if you're having any forbidden ideas have crossed your mind. At the same time, Bill Clinton, who really is, is a gigantic ball of sleeves, um, Bill Clinton will be given the standing ovation as a great unifier. Yeah, well... You could I, not make that up either. No, I mean, especially against the backdrop of, you know, the Ghislaine Maxwell uh, investigation and so forth. I mean, indictment and investigation. I mean, the idea that you have that going on in the backdrop of all of these uh, powerful people I guess that's more, you know, more of a remark, uh, commentary on the times. I, I wonder, though, if, if you're since, since you're a little bit more of a texture thinker than a lot of the uh, the punditocracy, the, the, this idea that, you know, just uh, everything runs through covid and that's how the election's going to be decided. And it's whether, you know, schools are open and who's to blame if they're not and whether the economy is doing a little bit better and who if they're who's to blame if they're not. Do you sense any real cultural revulsion in the West to what you were just describing? and that that may have as much impact on who wins on November 3rd as anything? I am a great believer in the silent majority, and I'm a great believer in the common sense of the majority of people. I think um, we have a, a great social media, obviously, with all kinds of entertainment, um, amplifies the impression that everybody thinks like a first-year graduate student. They don't. Most people know that this is a hustle which is being perpetrated upon them by people who want the government to have ever more power over them. I think there are vast majorities of people who realize also that they're going to end up being soaked for taxes. You know, uh, the, it's the middle who pay for this. The aristocracy can do what they like. The poorest will be supported by the state, but it's the middle who will end up subsidizing this. And what they're subsidizing is creating a permanent ruling class. Well, you know, we had one of those in England for a long time, and eventually even the English got tired of it. The Americans never wanted one, and I don't see why they should start now. So, no, I think that the vast majority of people are very much against it. And when push comes to shove, 
they will push back against it. When uh, President Trump uh, talks about, you know, sort of the radical left, he's, he's not quite using these terms, but he's essentially saying, you know, you have a choice between uh, civilization, uh, something approximating civilization, and the lawlessness you see on the streets of America's big cities over the last couple of months. I mean, is that uh, a sufficient way to frame it, to appeal to that common sense realist that you're talking about? Well, I, I can't help. Um, that, to see this, if, you, if you're Joe Biden and you're trying to say I'm a centrist Democrat in a safe pair of hands, it can't help to have had months of the worst rioting in half a century on the TV. That said, I think that people are also aware that the uh, initial response to COVID was unsatisfactory. And so Trump has a, has a credibility problem, perhaps, on that. And, and I speak of somebody who suspects he will still win. I, I think he will win. I think these polls are, are nonsensical. But the challenge uh, that Trump faces is not just to uh, come across as Mr. Law and Order. It's also to convince the, the swing voters and the centrists that the Republicans are more trustworthy, trustworthy when it comes to the economic revival we need, the recovery. And of course, if you look at the, the history, recent history, you'll see, yes, they are. So um, if it is going to be a vote on COVID recovery, then it's the center that he has to play to. And on that center, I think Kamala Harris is a very difficult person to play against. If you're not plugged into politics all the time, then she looks like a, a, a good and safe and reasonable person. Whether she is, of course, is, is another question. Mm. And uh, again, to, to, to close with uh, another observation from Livy, every city contains wicked citizens from time to time and an ignorant populace all the time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to worry about that, too. Uh, we, we have it the other way around, I think. I think, I think the, occasionally the populace are wicked. Well, uh, I think the rulers are idiotic all the time. Yeah, well, it, yeah. it's worth. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that probably is more accurate in the modern context. He's Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor for Spectator USA, contributor to The Wall Street Journal and New Criterion. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show as we close out uh, this edition. Uh, this New York Post piece by Kyle Smith is a good catch on his part. You can also catch Kyle Smith's work at National Review, but... Blazing Saddles. I remember this is four years ago at the Chicago Theater. I went to a screening of Blazing Saddles, which, of course, I've seen many times because I'm a red-blooded American male growing up. And uh, this screening at the Chicago Theater was watch the film again, enjoy it with friends, back when we could do such things. And then Mel Brooks would come out and take questions, and that's what he did. Took questions for about an hour. And this is Mel Brooks. I mean, he had to be 90 years old at the time and was just as sharp and clever and funny as ever. And the first question he got at Chicago Theater, which apparently is the first question he gets all the time when he at least at that time when he was on tour doing these screenings in big cities is, uh, do you think you can make Blazing Saddles today? This is in 2016. Uh before Trump's election, do you think you can make Blazing Saddles today? And he said, no, absolutely not. Would he even have a career today, I wonder? 
Well, maybe if there were appropriate trigger warnings, he could. Yeah. HBO Max has slapped warnings on Blazing Saddles. And they they hired a University of Chicago professor to be the uh, tipper gore of trigger warnings. Jacqueline Stewart is her name. Uh, Stewart informs uh, the prospective viewer that the movie features, quote, racist language and attitudes, but, quote, those attitudes are espoused by characters who are explicitly portrayed here as narrow-minded, ignorant bigots. The film's real and much more enlightened perspective is represented by the two main characters. As Kyle Smith reports, you don't say... Stewart's intro should be called Blazing Obviousness, since everyone knew all of that and always has for the 46 years the movie's been in release. Uh, he writes, uh, if you didn't know, uh, say, kids, did you know Blazing Saddles is an overt and audacious spoof on classic westerns, which is also described at? Well, now you do, thanks to the trigger warning. So you don't confuse it with uh, being a Swedish drama about the lingonberry harvest. But, uh, you know... Um, it's uh, understandable with respect to these uh, Jacobin minders, these cancel culture censors. You have to keep the Waco kids perspective on um, these farmers, if you will, of culture. You've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land. The common clay of the new West. You know, morons. Yeah. University of Chicago professor Jacqueline Stewart, HBO Max executives. You know, morons. Thank you for joining us on another installment. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Proft Show.